Dietz and Watson's been making meats and cheeses the right way since forever. What's that mean? It means never cutting corners, ever. It means cooking, not processing. It means our Virginia brand ham that's cooked to perfection, then twice baked to layer the flavors. It takes more time, but you can taste the difference. We come to work every day to do it the right way, even if it's the hard way. Because if it's not right for us, it's not right for you. Dietz and Watson, it's a family thing since 1939. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed, also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Hello and welcome to the Circling the Bases podcast, proudly presented by NBC Sports Edge. My name is DJ Short and with me here once again is Drew Silva. In case you haven't noticed, there's a lockout in Major League Baseball right now, unfortunately. But instead of dwelling on the negative here, we're going to spend upcoming episodes talking about the teams who are the most active leading up to the lockout. We saw a flurry of activity just prior to December 2nd, of course. So to get us started this week, we're going to talk some Mets with Tim Britton of The Athletic. Tim, thanks so much for stopping by. We really appreciate it. Thanks for having me on. Yeah. So I I guess the thing that since there's no player movement right now, all the focus with the Mets is on this managerial search. And, you know, there are several candidates and a lot of good candidates, a lot of experienced names. Uh, There was one that came out. Thursday that I think a lot of people weren't familiar with Clayton McCullough, the first base coach of the Dodgers, but otherwise it's a pretty experienced group, but it does seem at least from the way it's being covered in the media, that it's almost a foregone conclusion that it's Buck Showalter. Is that, (laughs) is that kind of your feeling on it as well? I I mean, I think there is a gap between uh, being the favorite in a a situation like this and being a foregone conclusion. Uh, You know, I have covered other managerial searches where someone looked like they were the foregone conclusion and then they weren't. Uh, The Red Sox hired Bobby Valentine that time when that happened. So uh, I don't think the Mets will go down that road. Um, But (laughs) it's interesting because you, you. contrast this search with the one the Mets did a few years back, the one that landed them at first, Carlos Beltran. That one, you know, Joe Girardi at the start of that process was the guy that a lot of fans latched on to for similar reasons as Showalter has. He's a guy who managed in New York successfully with the Yankees. Uh, He was the guy who had far and away the most experience at the major league level among the candidates. I think with Girardi, none of the other candidates had managerial experience. Here you've got Bob Guerin and Brad Ausmus as guys who have interviewed, who've managed before. So it's not quite the the gulf in in track records. Uh, but I do think, you know, uh, given what Steve Cohen has said about what he wants in a manager and, and what he wants in staff in general, infamous quote of, you know, I don't want, I don't like people learning on my dime, uh, that Showalter kind of fits that mold for him. 
Uh, and, you know, Showalter fits the mold for a team that feels like it wants to win, right? That, that is, is certainly spending as if they're planning on winning uh, and contending right away in 2022. I'll ask a question here, and, and this is going to take us back a bit, like right before that, that rush of activity, right before uh, the lockout was instated. But the hiring of Billy Epler, um, and I know you've written extensively about it, and uh, I love your writing at The Athletic. I think you're one of the best beat writers out there, your coverage of the Mets. Um, what what is the structure of the front office going to be? Is it Sandy Alderson's going to pull back into more business operations like he's kind of been planning to for a while now? And, and Epler's going to be the decision guy on the baseball end, obviously kind of spending Steve Cohen's money. He'll have final say on a lot of big deals. But um, what do you see Epler's uh, role being in this front office moving forward? Yeah, you know, I think it's going to be at least at the start, kind of similar as where it was for for Sandy Alderson and Jared Porter at the very start of last off season. Uh, you know, that December to January before they let Porter go, and then what it was for Zach Scott for mo- most of the the regular season before he was put on administrative leave at the start of September, where you know that person in the GM role uh, has is in charge of all of the day-to-day activity with the team. You know, Sandy Alderson does not really care about who's going from double A AA to triple A. Uh, and that kind of thing, uh, who's going on the injured list. But, you know, I think the bigger decisions, uh, certainly, you know, last year when it was Francisco Lindor's extension, that was a Steve Cohen operation more than anyone else. Uh, you know, when you're you're doing pulling things at the trade deadline, you know, Sandy Alderson is very much a part of those conversations. So I think, you know, he described it back in November of, 2020, uh, of 2019. Uh, no, November 2020, sorry. Uh, it's confusing. Um, yes. We're all with there with you. <laughs> <laughs> he described it last November uh, as basically like, I'm not, I, I'm not going to be at the head of the table, but I'm going to have a seat at the table. Uh, yeah. You know, over the course of this season, the table was deserted around him, basically, because they got rid of so many people. Uh, but I think he will be still at the table. And, and you know, Billy Epler will take a larger and larger responsibility the more and more comfortable he gets with the organization. Well, yeah, I mean, that makes sense. Uh, of course, on Mets Twitter, everything is everything is uh, the sky is falling all the time. <laughs> but when Adam Cromey was discussed... Remember that guy for briefly? Yes, that was was a weird four days, right? Yeah, yeah. So when that was discussed, I was like, of course, Sandy Alderson would have to be in the room. But uh, at least with Epler, he's been in the game recently. He's just a little over a year removed from being a general manager. So I would think eventually Alderson can, you know, delineate those responsibilities once he's up to speed, which I I don't think is going to take very long. And you're going to have much more of a typical front office setup, I would think. Yeah, I, I think Epler fits that mold, like I mentioned, with, with Porter and Scott, guys who were uh, who had not been general managers before, whereas Epler has, but guys who had been, you know, were serious candidates for GM openings. Uh, that's a that's a contrast to to what Adam Cromie was, a guy who had been outside the game for five years. Uh, that would have been a much uh, a, a lengthier process in terms of reacclimation to baseball. Because, uh, you know, as you guys know, the sport has has changed a bit in a half decade. Uh, so that would have been a... Yeah. That, that would have been a more interesting process and probably one where Alderson was more involved for a longer period of time. Yeah, I, I remember the reports about Cromie, at least kind of toward the end when he was being considered, which was just about a week that it started to quiet down. But initially there was a report that um, the reason you want to get back into baseball, and again, this is all reporting, so I don't know what's true, uh, that he was sort of frustrated that he was turned down for a promotion at his law firm. And that's why he looked to get back into baseball. But now he didn't get the Mets GM job. To my knowledge, he's not 
going to a front office somewhere. So he's, he's just staying at the law firm. I don't know. Uh, you know uh, someday we'll be like, what happened to Adam Cromie? <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I do not know the intricacies of how, how Jones Day law firm works in terms of offering uh, a yeah. partner and all that. So I, I did yeah. not get that. that was, I didn't report that. I don't, I'm not sure. I had heard that. I've heard actually both sides that he was trying to get back into baseball and also that he had kind of given up on, on baseball and had taken a step back because he had, you know, in those those five years, he had helped teams kind of consulting with arbitration, but I wasn't even doing that. Uh, the last last year or so. So I'm not sure exactly how that whole thing evolved. I know there are a lot of people in baseball who uh, would not have been that happy had he gotten a job like that after not being in the sport for five years. So I think, you know, the way that that whole roundabout search uh, transpired and and landed on Epler, it land, you know, it landed in a reasonable spot in the end uh, after all of the names that were out there. I'm anticipating okay, cool. like a, a we want chromie chant in Queens. <laughs> if they get off to like a one in five start Whoa. next year, they like uh, lose their happen. first two series. <laughs> at least ironically, it will yeah. happen at some point. <laughs> I don't know if you remember, like way back in the beginning of the search, there was briefly a report that the Mets were considering a CEO of a car wash company. Do you remember was- that? I remember, there, yeah, there was the one, I forget who had tweeted out that that, that was a guy they were yeah. considering. Uh, and then I think it was Joel Sherman who called him. And the guy's like, no, I'm, I'm happy running my car dealership. So, <laughs> yeah, car dealership. Is, you know, it's, it's, it's funny that that was just a month ago. It feels like it was much yeah, longer oh, than it, that. It definitely does. Uh, like the Mets are like, uh, DJ and I talk about this all the time, but they're, the coverage of them is unlike any other team. Um, and it's partly because there's so many media people in New York. There's tons of publications covering them. But it was just weird how that search, and this isn't the first time it's happened, like th- just these names leak out before they've even really talked to the candidates, it seems like. And I mean, you see that on like the Yankees side too sometimes. it's A lot of it's just like wild speculation by people that maybe have to put out some content. But it, it must be kind of weird and frustrating like navigating that as a professional journalist. Like the, the, there's a lot of noise, it seems like, and, and not a ton of signal all the time. Yeah, I know when I, when I you know, I, I used to cover the Red Sox and then I got the, the Mets job at the Athletic before the 2018 season. I know someone had said, you know, one of the things the Wilpons like to do is kind of throw stuff out there and see how fan, the fan base responds. Uh, and uh, I could see that over the course of the, the few years that I covered them under Wilpon ownership. Uh, and now even under Cohen, there, there's still some things you see and you're like, is that serious or is that like is that another one of these like well let's see what the response might be to this um you know like for the chromie thing i think in part because it was i think that was initially broken by the washington post that that made it feel more legitimate that it wasn't you know it clearly wasn't coming from the meth side of things uh in that regard right exactly so back to show walter for a second i i think the concern with some of the fans is that he might not be as open to analytics. Do you think that's overblown? Yeah. I mean, I, I think a, a manager, like I don't think someone in Showalter's position is necessarily going to manage the same way they managed uh, in New York, in Arizona, in Texas, in Baltimore. Uh, like we've seen it with Dusty Baker, you know, Dusty Baker's starters don't pitch into the eighth inning in, in playoff games anymore uh, because yeah. the, the sport has changed around him. Uh, I, I think, you can expect uh, a guy in that, you know, taking a job at this point in his career to be a little bit more flexible in how he views analytics. And and look, Showalter wasn't like 
uh, adamantly opposed to analytics earlier in his career either. He was open to them uh, his first time around in the Bronx. It was just different kinds of analytics. I think you looked at uh, where he was with the Orioles. They didn't shift very much. You know, a lot of teams didn't shift very much at that point in time, especially early in his tenure with Baltimore. Uh, so I, I think, you know, tactically, I, I know covering the AL East at the time he was with the Orioles, he was generally considered, you know, as good as anyone in that division from 7 p.m. to, to 10 p.m. every night. Uh, and it's kind of uh, ironic in, in some ways that the thing that everyone remembers him for with the Orioles, which is not bringing Zach Britton into mm-hmm. that, that yeah. wild card game in Toronto, uh, was the thing he was so good at in general, which was managing an Orioles bullpen that was, consistently yeah. won them a lot, a ton of one-run games, a team that that always outperformed its run expect its Pythagorean uh, and its its run differential uh, because he knew how to handle a good bullpen and get the most out of it. Uh, so I, I think the idea that he's out of touch and and wouldn't be able to to connect uh, with, with with you know younger players or with with modern analytics as a as a tactician uh, are probably a little bit overblown. The job of major league manager has changed so much, even just in the last few years. And like you had a a, a column recently, uh, or you were like went back to a a quote from Buck Showalter in 2016, where he said, "You get credibility from having good players. It's not really complicated. You don't have much impact." He's acknowledging this in 2016. You can have an impact negatively, but it's about how good your players are and mostly your pitching. And we even saw with Dave Roberts in, in the playoffs this year, who I think most people regard as one of the best managers in baseball. They asked him like who his starting pitcher was. He's like, I only have really one vote in that. You know, it goes way to the top to decide to to pitch an opener or whoever we're gonna we're gonna throw. And I think most uh, teams run that way now. And and you're seeing kind of the devaluing. Uh, maybe that's not the right word, but of the manager position, I think we saw that. I'm I'm a Cardinals fan. And I, I hate to always bring up the Cardinals on this podcast, but it, it's just in my nature. But I think we saw that with Mike Schilt. I think that's why they let him go. Schilt was probably like, hey, I won manager of the year a year ago. Um, I guided us to the playoffs this year with a franchise record 17-game winning streak. I want to get paid like, you know, a Terry Francona or, you know, Aaron Boone or whatever those guys are making. And I'm sure he was still on his entry-level contract. And the Cardinals were probably like, we don't really view you as – that valuable like we can spend three million dollars instead on a a middle reliever and i think that a lot of teams are maybe moving in that direction um which is sad but uh it's it's also kind of reality as teams become more analytics oriented and you know these decisions are being made by guys in the front office not necessarily you know you you get the manager post and you have full control over every move that happens, every roster decision. Like maybe you can write up the lineup and like that's yours, but other than and like you can make bullpen changes, but other than that, it's it's kind of a team effort guided by maybe some spreadsheets. Yeah, it's it's really interesting to juxtapose it against like the way the NFL works, for instance, where a lot of times if you're a franchise and you have an opening at general manager and head coach, you hire the coach first mm-hmm. and you find a GM who can work with that coach. You know, that's like how the 49ers did it with Kyle Shanahan and, and John Lynch years ago. Uh, whereas, you know, the, the Mets were in that situation and there was never a chance they were going to hire a manager. But well, I guess if they had gotten Bob Melvin, maybe that, that would have been the yeah. one, the one thing. Uh, but, you know, t- baseball teams don't hire a manager before they hire a GM and, and do it that way, because the GM is the more important piece of that puzzle. And it, it is more of a, uh, I guess like a, a caucus around 
certain decisions in terms of lineup and, and how you're going to construct uh, a roster. Uh, you don't have a lot of baseball managers making the Bill Parcells claim that, you know, if you're going to let me cook the, cook dinner, you got to let me shop for the groceries too. Uh, <laughs> you, don't, you don't have managers who do that anymore. Uh, actually, in that 2016 interview that I did with Buck Showalter for Baseball Perspectives, he did cite that Parcells line. So I, I think, you know, the, <laughs> I am sure that one of the questions that the Mets have had for him uh, in this past week in that first step, first interview that they had with Showalter is, you know, how open and willing are you to be a part of a larger process? This isn't you making the decision the way it probably was in 1995 with the Yankees or in, in Arizona, Texas, and, and for most of the time in Baltimore, because I think the, the thought in Baltimore was as good as things went for that organization while he and Dan Duquette were there, that they weren't always on the same page with things. Uh, and so you need to make sure that that Showalter can work well with Epler, uh, with Sandy Alderson, and with however they build out this front office uh, over the rest of this offseason and into next. So obviously, Steve Cohen has his recommendation and, and you know, his, his bottom line is, you know, what it's going to come down to ultimately. But if Billy Epler goes through this first series of interviews and is, you know, saying, I really like Joe Espada, for example, or Bob Guerin, how much weight do you think that has in the end? I know they're probably going to end up doing something more collaborative uh, discussions, but how much you influence do you think Epler could have in that decision ultimately? I don't think he can unilaterally make that decision. Um, I'll go back again to the the year the Red Sox hired Bobby Valentine. Uh, that was the 2011 offseason. It was Ben Sherrington's first year as the Red Sox GM. They brought in five candidates. Uh, they, they did all the interviews and they, they settled on Dale Swain. That was the guy they wanted to be the manager. And then they had, you know, the next step was for Dale Swain to meet ownership. Uh, and ownership did not didn't think he was the guy, didn't think he was capable of being the manager for a big market team in Boston, but whatever reason they didn't like him and they kind of reopened the process. And that's when Valentine who hadn't even been part of the initial uh, set of interviews came in uh, and and emerged as the, as the guy. Um, You know, I think you go in, you know, the Mets have six candidates. Now the idea is they'll have two to three meet next week with Cohen as part of that second interview. And you can imagine, you know, maybe there is a front runner in, in Alderson's mind or in uh, Billy Epler's mind. And if Cohen gets the wrong feel for him, uh, he might, you know, eliminate that, that person. Or if he has a really strong feeling one way or another, whether it's for Showalter or someone else, uh, that might sway the rest of the group because, you know, he's the one that gets to, you know, if, if anyone gets to make a, a unilateral decision in that, that group, it's, it's Steve Cohen. Uh, even though he's got the least experience in hiring managers. Right, absolutely. So we're going to get into the player stuff in a second. Before we do that, a quick word for our listeners. You can subscribe to NBC Sports Edge Plus and get tools for every game. Now all of our premium tools for fantasy, DFS, and, and betting are included in one subscription for a low price. You can subscribe monthly or save 20% on an annual subscription. We've made it easier than ever with more tools than ever to play and wager with confidence with NBC Sports Edge Plus. Dietz and Watson's been making meats and cheeses the right way since forever. What's that mean? It means never cutting corners, ever. It means cooking, not processing. It means our Virginia brand ham that's cooked to perfection, then twice baked to layer the flavors. It takes more time, but you can taste the difference. We come to work every day to do it the right way, even if it's the hard way. Because if it's not right for us, it's not right for you. Dietz and Watson, it's a family thing since 1939. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed, also 76 yards. Why bring this up? 
Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Do you want a beautiful lawn? Enter True Green, the easiest way to get a great lawn. Just water and mow and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and more. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. And they have a verified best price, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com, T-R-U-G-R-E-E-N.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people. Guaranteed. Going over to the player side of things, of course, going back, I guess, a couple of weeks ago, the big controversy was Steve Cohen uh, putting out a tweet after Stephen Matz signed with the Cardinals um, and Cohen's ire wasn't at Stephen Matz. It was at the way that the agent conducted the negotiations. Now, I, I don't know. Our alternate universe, like let's say that the Mets did sign Stephen Matz. How could things have played out differently? Or was this destined to play out this way no matter what? Like, I, I think there's like this um, narrative that, he went on like a rage spending spree <laughs> to sign, you know, Marte and Canna and Eduardo Rescobar and ultimately Max Scherzer. How, mu- how much of that's true? Or is it like a little bit of both? I find it hard to believe that like Steve Cohen was planning an austere off season and then Steven Max yeah, yeah. turned him down and it, <laughs> and it was like, Oh no, unleash the Kraken kind of yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, thing here. Um, I, I think what, what's, what's interesting is like Matt's could have fit the same off season plan. You know, yeah. like they still need that kind of starter mm-hmm. for their rotation. Uh, you know, it's possible that had Matt had they signed Matts to the same kind of contract he ended up with in St. Louis, uh, that they uh, go a little harder for Kevin Gosman rather than Max Scherzer. Uh, but uh, you know, I, I think the actual overall outlay for Scherzer, uh, 130 million for the three years, isn't that different from what Gosman got uh, in uh, Toronto in terms of the overall package. So uh, I think it'll be interesting to see what they decide to do in terms of the rest of the rotation, because they still need to sign, uh, sign or trade for a starter that fits in kind of that three, four, five spot for them uh, after DeGrom and Scherzer. Uh, and then, you know, like if you look at the other moves, uh, I don't think anyone would say like signing Eduardo Escobar, Mark Canna, you know, maybe Marte a little bit, but that's not really a huge spending spree, you know. Yeah. You follow the Mets, like Eduardo Escobar and Mark Canna, that's a full offseason for, for the Wilpon <laughs> Mets. Like yeah. that, yes, those yes. are the moves you make. <laughs> um, so it's really it's really the Marte and the Scherzer deal in particular that make it so different for this this iteration of the Mets. As far as major league teams go, the, the Mets look a lot more complete than than most uh, because they were active before the lockout getting Marte and Escobar and Scherzer and uh, Mark Canna, who I really liked, high on base percentage guy. What are some areas that they really need? You mentioned a fourth or fifth starter, maybe both a fourth and fifth starter. Um, if you can't rely on Carlos Carrasco or Tyler McGill to do, to replicate what he did, I, I would say bullpen would probably be a, a huge area, right? And then maybe some some kind of bench depth. But I actually looking at their roster right now, just pulling up their depth chart. There, that's there's some pretty good depth there. They already have like a, a, a decent versatile bench, which is usually like the sign of a, 
a, a team that's pushing into contention. I know they actually tried to build a pretty good bench last year too, and it didn't work out as well. But w- what are some areas where you think they they need to to add? Yeah, I think one of the reasons they feel more complete is because they've kind of displaced some guys who started a lot last year in in J.D. Davis and Dominic Smith, uh, who are now on their bench. And they're bringing back potentially Robinson Cano uh, that, you know, if there is a DH in the National League, they've already got some options for that as well. Uh, I think the bullpen uh, is probably the, the, the place really screaming out for an addition at this point. They've got, uh, you know. Edwin Diaz, Seth Lugo, and Trevor May as your real back-end guys there, all of whom are set to be free agents after this upcoming season, uh, as well as Miguel Castro, who's kind of the other guy who, who threw a lot of innings for them, returning more in a, a middle relief role. He's also going to be a free agent after 22. So I, I think you know, that's a spot where I'd expect them to add. I think they probably need to add at least two arms, if not a third, uh, to give them kind of that that bullpen depth uh, that you know, you're going to use. I, I forget exactly how many it was. I think Maybe it was 22 relievers that they used last year over the course of the full season. Yeah. And, you know, their 40-man roster does not have a single left-handed reliever on it. Uh, and so, uh, you know, they, they already lost Aaron Loop to, to Anaheim. Uh, you know, a guy like Andrew Chafin would make a lot of sense as someone who can replicate that kind of production. A guy who, who's left-handed but can also get righties out late in the game for, for you. Uh, you know, a guy like Ryan Tapero from the right side has had uh, really good results the last couple of years. Uh, with both Chicago teams. So those are, those are the types of names I expect to hear the Mets in on once we get this started again. And then there there is still debate over where they are on the infield because you know Alonzo's at first, you know Lindor's at short. Uh, you've got Escobar presumably to play third, uh, and you've got Jeff McNeil and Cano floating around there. you still got J.D. Davis as a potential option at third. Or you can, you know, this is a team that was still interested in bringing back Javi Baez. You can make a big move for a Chris Bryant uh, and put him mm-hmm. at third and then, you know, play Escobar all over the place uh, if you've got a DH. Uh, that's that's one way they can go. It's not the way I expect them to go, but I, I do think when we have six to eight weeks at least of uh, talking about nothing, we're going to speculate about things like that. <laughs> yeah, you, you got any topics for the podcast? We're, we're struggling. <laughs> it is tough. It is tough right now. You, that's for you're sure. A, you're a Duke guy, right? We could talk college basketball. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, let's. Well, you know, I, I was I was much more into college basketball after the Gonzaga game, uh, and not after the Ohio State game. <laughs> <laughs> so I think I, what I loved about what the Mets did prior to the lockout. I mean, obviously, seeing them do anything is good for me, but I think they have so much versatility and options from a trade perspective. But also, you know, if Chris Bryant is still out there and they for whatever reason, feel like it's the right move for them. They could trade a Jeff McNeil. They could trade a J.D. Davis. They could get a reliever for a J.D. Davis. They could still maybe swing a trade for a, for a starting pitcher. Sonny Gray will likely be available from the Reds, and they're looking to cut costs. The A's are looking to cut costs as well. Maybe Sean Manaya is an option for the rotation too. So I like what they did just to stock, start to stockpile that depth um, because it gives them options on the trade front. And you can backload that later with some free agents that are available uh, for depth as well. So I think they've really put themselves in a good position once the lockout is over to start to really pounce and, and make some moves as well. Yeah, and I, I think you know you talk about trading for a starting pitcher and, and Cincinnati and Oakland are the two teams that are, are stocked. Uh, you know, Cincinnati's got Castillo, Gray, and Tyler Molly. Uh, Oakland's got Chris Bassett, Frankie Montes, and, and Manaya. And those are teams that want to cut costs. And they've also got some high-priced guys that 
you know, maybe the Mets can lower the prospect cost if they take on, you know, maybe it's Mike Moustakis or Eugenio Suarez from Cincinnati. Maybe it's Elvis Andres from, from Oakland. Guys, right. you know, Suarez and Moustakis, you probably believe a little bit more, can, can be contributors at the major league level than a guy like Andres. But, you know, the, the Mets don't have the deepest farm system. We saw how that affected them at the trade deadline last year, that they've got this group yeah. of like five or six really good prospects that everyone wants. And then they yeah. don't have that second, you know, they don't have the the kind of B, B-plus prospects. You can pair a couple of them to get a big name. Uh, so they don't want to give up too much uh, from from what prospect depth they do have. So lowering the cost by taking on additional money, you know, their, their, their payroll is already going to be over whatever the luxury tax is yeah. uh, next season. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So you might as well uh, take on more money uh, if, it, if it lowers the prospect cost. Yeah, actually, you brought up a good point, and and it kind of goes into the way that Mets approach the offseason. I don't know if this was by design or not, but it's worked out well. None of the players they've signed is going to cost them a draft pick. Meanwhile, they're going to get a pick back for Michael Conforto. They're going to get a pick back for Noah Syndergaard. They have two first-round picks already because they didn't sign Kumar Rocker. So they they are giving these shorter-term kind of contracts, too. They didn't get locked into a six-year free agent or seven-year free agent deal like maybe it would require for Javi Baez, you give three to uh, Max Scherzer, four to Starling Marte, two each to Escobar and, and Canna. So you're not locking yourself in long-term and you're still protecting those prospects and trying to build up uh, the farm system. So the way they've approached, it, I think, has been really smart. Not sure if it's by design, but it's worked out really well. Yeah, you know, we've gotten used to big market teams that are are – Going around, you know, right about the the luxury tax threshold the last few years, trying to lengthen deals to lower the average annual value. You know, the Yankees and DJ LeMahieu is a prime example of that, or the Phillies with Bryce Harper. Uh, you know, again, going back to the time I was covering Boston, I know, you know, earlier in the decade, uh, they were less concerned about the going over the tax and paying the tax. And so they, they went the other direction. They tried to go with shorter deals with higher AAV. That, that goes back to like the 2012-13 offseason when they signed guys like Shane Victorino uh, going into a, a, what happened to be a World Series year. Uh, and that was an approach that, you know, if the Mets were going to go over the tax, and it seemed like everything Steve Cohen had said over the last year had indicated he would go over whatever threshold there was going to be for next season. And he didn't plan to just kind of tiptoe over it. He was going to step over it pretty, pretty drastically uh, that – you know, if you want to get a Max Scherzer, don't give him uh, the four-year deal uh, at a, a slightly lower AAV. Give him three at a, a, a big one, a, a record-setting one. Same with guys like Canna and Escobar. You know, I think you look at those deals and they, they seem like they're a little bit higher than you would have expected probably on a per-year basis, but they have avoided giving that, that extra year uh, that, that, you know, can, can hurt you at the end of a, a contract. Nick Plummer was an interesting minor league free agent signing recently for the Mets. Uh, if people are not familiar, he was the 23rd overall pick in the 2015 draft out of a high school in the Detroit area where they play like 16 games a year. I think the high school he went to, Brother Rice, that they have like a 16 game schedule because it, it gets cold up there quickly. Um, like completely was a bust uh, for the first three years that he was in the Cardinals system. Maybe some of that is just, he hasn't, he hadn't played enough ball, uh, but struggled at low a ball, struggled at high a ball. Finally, this past summer uh, between double a and triple a puts up an eight ninety four OPS, a four fifteen on base percentage, some pop and some speed. Um, I, I was kind of upset that the Cardinals let him get away. Cause it seemed like he finally figured something out. And I know he's 25 years old now, 
Um, but did they? Did you get any like quotes about what they saw in him, or was it too late to actually get a, a team official on the phone about what they liked in Nick Plummer? I haven't spoken to anyone like formally about him. I do yeah. know, you know, the the walk rate has been huge, mm-hmm. uh, and most of his career in the minor leagues, he's, he's shown a really good walk rate, which you know Sandy Alderson has loved for decades. Uh, and then, like you said, kind of the rest of the package came together for him a little bit this past year. Uh, this guy who can give them versatility in the outfield. The Mets have had the shallowest outfield depth of, of any team that I know of in the last four or five years. There's a reason Tim Tebow had a chance to get to the major leagues with this organization. I knew that would come up. <laughs> um, and so, you know, it's, look, if I'm a Mets reporter and I say it's kind of like the Sam McWilliams signing last year, it's going to make a lot of Mets fans roll their eyes because they thought Sam McWilliams was going to be this big thing and he got DFA'd by the middle of the summer. Didn't work out for him. But this is exactly the kind of risk that the Mets are in a position that they can take now. Like, it's a, it's a, a, small major league signing of a minor league guy. Uh, it doesn't cost you a ton of money if he misses. If he makes it, that's a, a really good piece to have. A guy who's going to have three option years for you. A guy who can really uh, add value uh, and, and add depth to a roster that, you know, last year had to sign, had to trade for Cameron Maven and, and hit, yeah. start him in center field and hit him third for uh, a week or so. You know, we saw how many outfielders they went through, especially in the month of May. Uh, hopefully, a guy like Plummer can help help them out in a situation like that. Khalil, yeah, we, Khalil Lee is really interesting. Yeah, I was going to say that. Yeah, uh, like a yeah. huge year at AAA last year, and then he he stole fifty three bases. Was that in like two thousand nineteen? Just so toolsy, but you know, I, I know he struggled in in limited action at the major league level this summer, but. Uh, it'd be nice to see if he's a guy that could put it all together because I mean, as fantasy writers, like he, he's just dripping with fantasy upside with that speed. Yeah. And he's a guy who, who got that cameo. I think it was mid to late May. So you're thinking like, that's a really, really early part of you know the minor league season that started maybe two weeks earlier. Mm-hmm. The guy who didn't play, I think at all in 2020, he was probably at the alternate site for Kansas city. Uh, so hadn't had game action in a while and it showed, you know, he struck out a ton uh, did he go one for 18 or something like that? Yeah. The one hit was in extra innings, if I remember correctly. To yeah, it was down the right field. It was in the right field <laughs> corner against the Marlins. Yep, yep, yep. yep. So, uh, you know, th- he was a guy that the, the Mets said at that time in May, like, look, he's he's not supposed to be here at this level right now. Like, we know that that we're stretching him to get him here right now. Uh, but they, they still believed in his bat, and they saw why uh, over the course of the rest of the year in AAA. I was a little surprised we didn't get – uh, much of a look at him where we didn't get any of a look of him uh, in the month of September, uh, whether they, you know, when they had the option to call him up, uh, but that's tighter September rosters now, but he's another guy that I don't know that he starts next season on the opening day roster as a bench uh, bat off in, in the outfield. But he's another guy that I, I expect to play a role for them in terms of, of building that outfield depth. And, you know, that outfield, you've got Brandon Nimmo now who's going to be a free agent after 2022. If Khalil Lee has another, Nice year in AAA shows out a little bit at the major league level that makes that decision on Nimmo a little more interesting. Yeah, they, they actually have some position prospects who are getting closer. Mark Vientos might be an option at some point next season, I would think. He really had a nice year in the minors this past season. Brett Beatty's getting closer, Francisco Alvarez. So as these guys get up and they're a bit more cost controlled, I guess we'll see what happens with the CBA as far as uh, younger players and and when they could get paid sooner. Uh, which which I'm rooting for, but they they do have some good prospects who are not very far away, and and Mets fans are used to pitching being what's what gets to the majors and gets you all excited, Generation K and all that. Uh, 
But yeah, I mean, there's a wave of position players coming that I think are really, really exciting. Yeah, and it's been it's been a while since you could say that you know the, the Mets brought up obviously Jeff McNeil in 2018, I think it was, uh, and then and then Alonzo in 2019, and those were the the last big prospects they brought up. Once those guys got up, it was kind of it's going to be three or four years before we see anyone of, of note. Uh, the way the system was 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 structured at that time, and now you're getting to the point. You mentioned Vientos; he got to AAA at the very end of last season. Uh, Beatty got to AA. Francisco Alvarez got up to high A. Ronnie Mauricio was in double A by the end of the season. So they've got that that next core group of guys who I think really by the end of 2023, we'll see a bunch of them probably in the majors by then. We'll see, you know, who gets weeded out uh, of that group uh, and, and how they fit defensively because, you know, Mauricio is still playing short and you've got Lindor there. Uh, Beatty and Vientos are both third basemen. Uh, they've, they've played around with them either at first base or in the corner outfield. Again, a DH. The Mets are always in position to be helped by as many designated <laughs> hitters as possible. Uh, you know, Alvarez is a catcher, uh, is, is the guy I think that you know, he's the top-ranked prospect in the system. He's probably the farthest away of those four, but probably the most exciting and has the highest ceiling. If he puts everything together, that's an MVP candidate and not just a, a really solid everyday player. So, you know, th- that's one of the reasons the Mets can spend the way they are right now. If you go back to... Steve Cohen saying we want to emulate the Dodgers. You know, when yeah. the Dodgers started the, the, this process they've been on in, in 2012 under new ownership, uh, the, the first big thing they did was that trade with Boston to bring in Adrian Gonzalez and Carl Crawford and Josh Beckett and take on $250 million or something like that uh, in payroll commitments because they knew they were they were years away from the, the farm system making the, the big difference. And so they were able to, you know, build up the current major league roster in free agency. And then it was when, when they built up the, the prospect system the way they wanted to, that they were able to get more cost control in there and kind of settle in at a, you know, slightly lower than $275 million payroll. Yeah. Being able yeah. to bring in talent without giving away a bunch of young talent because you're willing to take on large contracts. It helps to have a, an owner who's very rich and willing to spend some of that money in a, a non-salary cap league for now, a non-salary Cap League. Do, do you have a prediction on when this lockout's going to end? You know, it's. I think anyone you talk to in baseball thinks it will end before spring training, right? Mm-hmm. I don't know anyone who is so pessimistic to think it will last longer than that. Uh, I, I, I do wonder, you know, certainly last year I thought uh, that they would start playing sooner than they did, that that would not be as acrimonious as it was getting the 2020 shortened season in. Uh, I thought that we would have a DH uh, in the National League in 2021, but it was too acrimonious to get that in. So I, I think that has led me to be a little bit more pessimistic than, than some others. Uh, I do think once we get past the Super Bowl, which is what, the second Sunday in February this year, I think that's when you get kind of more of the the eye of the, the sports world out, like, hey, why is baseball still not not doing anything. I think that might be when pressure ratchets up. And then, you know, that's around the time when spring training is supposed to start anyway. Uh, It would not surprise me then to see a delayed start to spring training and then get a deal in, you know, shortly before spring training games are supposed to start. That's what I'm thinking too. These, these sides don't work well until there's like pressure, some kind of deadline. And if there is going to be a deadline, it would seem like it would be around when spring training would normally start. My worry is that, and you know, as someone who relies on baseball games being played to like make money, my worry is that the players' only leverage is like to drag this into the season. And like, if they really want that service time structure changed, my worry is that their leverage is going to be created by like you know telling owners, "Hey, well, you're not going to get gate revenue or 
you know, your, your TV contracts fulfilled. And I mean, that's a, a doomsday nightmare scenario. I think both parties, the union and the, and the owners realize that baseball is not in a position right now to, I don't want to use the word survive, but like, it would be just be, re- it's a really bad time for the sport to, to alienate fans who might already be on the fringe. Yeah. Anyway. One would hope that the, the experience yeah. in 2020, when, you know, they, they had the opportunity to be kind of the first sport back mm-hmm. the sport that was played entirely outdoors, uh, that, that could have put together a, a longer season than they were able to, uh, that they missed that opportunity. And, and certainly the owners lost, more lost money in a way that they usually don't players did not make the money they expected to make in 2020. You would think that would leave them both a little bit uh, hardened to the idea of uh, not wanting to lose actual made actual regular season games this time around uh, because of what happened just, just last year. Let's hope so. Well, this was great, Tim. Thank you so much for, for coming on the show. Do you have anything you want to pitch before we go? Uh, just, just you know, follow me on Twitter at Tim Britton. Uh, read me at the Athletic uh, at theathletic.com slash team slash Mets. I think is what what it is. Uh, just you know, that's all. You know, I'll be I'll be here all off season, regardless of of the lockout status. Still writing stories. And you do a podcast with Ted Berg, right? Yes, yeah, we do the Metrospective podcast. Uh, I believe we're on like an every two week schedule currently uh, in the off season. So uh, I love yeah, Ted. Also listen to that. Yeah, Ted's great. That's Ted's awesome. awesome. We'll, we'll have to have Ted on for a, for a trivia game at some point. Uh, I think that would be fun. A sandwich uh, had, trivia game. <laughs> yeah, yes, exactly. Ted will get you on, I promise. I've been in contact with Ted. We've been trying to work it out for a while. I will get you on, Ted, I promise. Uh, so one more thing for our les- listeners here before we go. We're headed down the backstretch of the NFL season and the NBC Sports Predictor app, powered by PointsBet, has you covered with Sunday Night 7. We're giving you a shot to win $1 million every Sunday night throughout the rest of the regular season. It's free and easy to play. So predict what will happen between the Bears and Packers for a chance to win. Download today from your app store or visit NBCSports.com slash predictor. If you like what you're hearing with this show, Circling the Bases, be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, please rate and review if you don't mind. Follow us on Twitter. If you don't already, I'm at DJ Short. Drew is at Drew Sills. Be safe out there and we will see you next time. Dietz and Watson's been making meats and cheeses the right way since forever. What's that mean? It means never cutting corners, ever. It means cooking, not processing. It means our Virginia brand ham that's cooked to perfection, then twice baked to layer the flavors. It takes more time, but you can taste the difference. We come to work every day to do it the right way, even if it's the hard way. Because if it's not right for us, it's not right for you. Dietz and Watson, it's a family thing since 1939. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. 